Section 6 of The Bachelor's Club by Israel Zangwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Hamlet Up to Date. Part 3. Now we are comfortable, said the ghost. Life is smoke, but smoke is life. Ashes to ashes, but ash to ash. A ghostly tale should begin and end in smoke. Thank you, yes, I will have another cigar myself. And now, sir, to my story, which shall be brief as gratitude. He drained the whiskey flask and commenced. Honest laboring man as I am now, I began life as a pressman. I am fallen, fallen, fallen from the fourth estate. I began as a brilliant penny a liar, and if ever my editor complained, I pointed out that I supplied him with exclusive information, which appeared in no other paper. My stages far from easy. I mounted from penny a lying to dictating the policy of the twinkler to an amanuensis. But the intoxication of power was too much for me, and I fell down the ladder I had climbed so tediously. I was not discouraged, for... La joie de vivre was always strong in me, and I knew a few pressmen who got me occasional work when I proffered to do it, so that I made enough for bread and cheese and kisses. They would not trust me with regular work. That had to be turned out with punctuality and dispatch. But I earned enough to keep my body and soul apart whenever desired. I was recognized in Quildam, as one of those brilliant Lucifers, but for whose providential fall the respectable Gabriels would find no market, and the mellifluous Michaels be compelled to sheathe their quills and their wings once more. Then I met your father. He was a cross between Lucifer and Gabriel, clever, but commonplace and careful. He wrote very smart articles and lived decorously and gradually gained a wide reputation as a brilliant but reliable journalist. He made one or two contributions to the heavy magazines and became a recognized man of light and leader writing. This is the journalist's climacteric, his most dangerous period. It was never more dangerous than today when the mass of readers has augmented out of all proportion to the number of men they care to give hearing to. Your father was besieged with invitations from editors and syndicates. He wrote anonymous, dramatic criticisms for eleven papers, London, provincial or foreign, picturesque parliamentary reports for twelve, and occasional leaders and signed articles for about twenty-five. It is so hard to refuse checks, but it is harder to earn them. The task of writing eleven dramatic criticisms, all different, is not so easy as it looks. When you have said a play is good, bad, and indifferent, you can only go on ringing the changes. The parliamentary reports are not so bad, for the politics of the paper you are writing for is a guide to the shades of coloring. It is when writers attempt too much that they go to the devil. In due course your father came to me. My beginnings were small and my deviling spasmodic, but I soon became indispensable. I wrote most of his London letters for him. He got three guineas for each, which he honestly shared with me. I did not grumble, for I was spared the trouble of looking for work, and I hate 
trouble. I liked writing London letters and putting on the grand air of hunting the lobby, being hand and glove with all the lions and having a private peephole in the cabinet chamber. They were no trouble and the only species of work I could be trusted to do regularly. I kept sober to do them. I invented a story in one letter, varied it in a second, commented on the discrepancies in the third, and contradicted it in a fourth. The London evening papers often quoted all four versions, and I wrote numerous leaderettes for your father commenting on them all. This was a happy, innocent time in my life. I was more often sober than not, and in short was quite moralized by my devilry. And my father did not even write his own articles— not all of them. How could he? How could any respectable journalist get through the work he has to do? Why, I know journalists who write descriptions of ball dresses who don't know a flounce from a furbelo. And how do they manage? inquired Harold sadly. They get the blue devils, of course. The learned lady writers, you know. But your father never got entangled in the clothesline, at least not directly. "'All this is a revelation to me,' said Harold. "'My father never cared for me to mix in his own circle, "'and he impressed upon me that I ought to feel grateful "'for being able to live without it, in both senses. "'But surely he wrote his first novel himself, "'Winifred Wynne, that made such a sensation?' "'Not a line. He has no idea of novel-writing.' He is a smart journalist, but he couldn't tell an artistic lie to save his life. But how came he to turn novelist? Somebody started a magazine and wanted it written by well-known names. He offered your father ten guineas for a thousand-word tale. But if my father never won his spurs in fiction, had never even written the smallest story, magazine editors are always on the watch to discover new talent in old names. A man explores New Guinea. There is a great demand for his views on a deceased wife's sister's bill. If he makes a hit as a comedian in the House of Commons, editors pester him for lyrics. If he invents a patent safety sausage machine, there is sure market for his stories of high life. And if he distinguishes himself by succeeding to a peerage, the title pages of the so-called nineteenth century will be thick with his lubrications. "'Yes, I have noticed something of a kind,' said Harold wearily. "'Well, then,' said his father's ghost, "'that was how I took to novel-writing. "'Your father came to me in great trouble. "'He was going to be married and wanted money, "'and told me of the offer. "'He said that he thought my London letters "'gave promise of a novelist, "'and as he generously offered to share fare and share alike, "'I consented to try.' The result justified the editor's sagacity. The little tale created a little sensation, and I wrote Winifred Wynne. After the success of that, my head was turned, and I took to drawing my money in advance, mitigating my claims in consideration. Somehow I got very little out of the volumes of Belle Lettres, but novels, essays, poetry, and the dramas that succeeded, in two senses— the more he made, the less I got, but it would not pay me to quarrel with him, and no publisher would touch my work without his name on it. 
Besides, I knew that if I had not been a literary ghost, I should have been a literal one long ago. Your father used to lock me up in his room for months together, when a new book or play was on the stocks, so I was steady perforce. Even then it was very erratic, and often and often when your father got letters for remonstrance from the publishers, he used to come into my den and indignantly reproach me with the discredit I was bringing upon his character. But he ought not to have reckoned without his ghost. But how did you fall so low? To the driver's perch? Yes, I suppose it is a fall, though Carlyle says all work is equally sacred. I did not drop into that at once, whether because my invention flagged, or because I was too uncertain, I forget, but after twenty years of faithful service your father started giving me less and less to do. He was feeling for his second manner. He found him, and I was discharged, with a caution to hold my tongue. And nothing else? Yes, a hundred pounds or so. A hundred pounds doesn't go far with me, barely further than the first holiday place I get to. This went with me to Brighton. I returned alone. That was four years ago. Since then I have tried all sorts of things for a living. I could not go back to journalism or literature, for I hadn't written a line for twenty years. But in my struggle for a living I have drunk in—no, not merely whiskey—lots of materials for another novel. I have been a penny steamboat steward, a bum, a dog fancier, a mesmerist, and a super. For a year I served in the Salvation Army, but I was saved by getting a situation as M.C. in a dancing saloon. I lost that and supported myself for six months by Jenny's sewing, after which that goddess out of the sewing machine induced me to become a bus conductor, from which the transition to my present position was easy. I sought out an old friend who had risen to nearly the top of the D.T., and the memory of our early struggles together in Fleet Street induced him to transfer me to the job of driving him home after his work, on condition that I did it cheaper. This I have done, cheaply and expeditiously, for the last three months, for the night traffic is light and I should not like to see Jenny's eye if I lost this regular job. I have been really like a ghost revisiting my old haunts and the pale glimpses of the moon. But what may ensue from my leaving my old chum stranded in the fog tonight I cannot say. Allow me to relight my cigar at yours. Harold was deeply moved as his cigar met the cabman's in the masculine substitute for a kiss. The dual glow was a symbol of mutual sympathy henceforwards. But why not publish this novel you have in your head? The cabman shook his head containing the novel. Who should publish it? My daughter Jenny, he said with a despairing chuckle. It is the only thing I have in print now, or am likely to get into it. Allow me to feel your face with a smile, as Lamb says. Don't be afraid. It is not too dark for me to see the joke, said Harold. But tell me, if your story is true, why do you allow yourself to be treated so scurvily? Why do you not denounce my father? What? Tell the truth? Where? Through what medium? To whom? 
no doubt i could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up the soul but the law of libel has to be reckoned with that lovely invention for the protection of scoundrels and the scourging of honest journalists your father could easily put me into a prison or a lunatic asylum the proofs would be said to be a fabrication the accusations malicious or maniacal might is eight now as ever there are a dozen leading organs in which your father could champion himself and ladle out vilification or badinage to me you mean to say my father is so base that he would descend to write anonymously about himself you forgot that his ghost would do it no i am no hot-headed enthusiast to risk exposing him i am an old man sobered by half a century of drink do you think i would sacrifice myself on the altar of truth at my age when i was younger i might have done it perhaps but now when i am not the ghost of his former self then i will do it cried harold starting up you yes it is monstrous that you should be cheated out of your reputation and your earnings oh to think that i am the son of a swindler who has lived by exploiting the talents of others and i it is your money that has kept me in luxury all my life i dare not look you in the face by the time the sun dawns you will have got over it my dear harold never groaned harold you have crippled me for life but this injustice must be righted and all the catalogues harold ross must be replaced by by edward halby at your service you're a fine fellow harold but you don't know your own father it's a wise child that does i am sorry that i told you but i really couldn't help it the situation was so odd let us say no more about it there are only four persons in the world who know who is the fourth jenny it is her only happiness to read the old reviews on your father's books when she is very angry with me she turns to some lofty moral passage out of one of the books themselves and then comes and combs my hair tenderly she would have married some honest man long ago and deserted me if i hadn't thrown in those soul-moving sentences cast thy bread upon the waters you see poor girl what a lot should have been hers a great man's daughter respected and admired the young man bowed his head in grief and abasement don't take on so it's an everyday matter as i have already told you most of the famous writers of the age are quite unknown have you not noticed that some of the most celebrated names are sometimes affixed to contributions contemptibly weak oh of course i have you mean that they have let ghosts do the work no their ghosts have been laid up and they have been compelled to understudy themselves the fact is that great baby the public is only a judge to the quality of names not to the quality of the writing so that when a man has made a reputation in the literary line he follows the example of all successful tradesmen nowadays and turns himself though quietly into a joint stock company or if he prefers to retire altogether he sells his name to a syndicate which pays him the capitalized value of it partly in money partly in shares calculated according to the number of years his popularity is likely to last then he puts his hands together with his lump sum 
into his pockets for the rest of his life, while a score of unknown authors are employed by the directors to turn out books with the special brand on the cover that the public raves about, and containing gore or psychology or humor or piety according to the nature of the first success, sometimes a blunder in the hiring of every clever hand in the works, and the author's reputation is bolstered up for an unexpected term of years to the great advantage of the dividend. Now you understand why the books of present-day writers are so curiously unequal. They sat talking till the morning light stole into the garret. The wasted brilliancy of this consumptive-looking creature fascinated him. The cabman's mind was a distorting mirror of paradox, and its reflections were twisted quaintly and not seldom disagreeably. But the flashing phantasmagoria of images held Harold's attention enchained, he even accepted some breakfast when the deft-fingered and early-risen Jenny proffered it. His father's ghost knew so many shady things that were worth being introduced to. He went away burning with admiration and righteous indignation, and the cabman had to go after him to ask for the two sovereigns. Harold did not go to bed that morning. He searched, Jaffet-like, for his father. But the great novelist was a social eel and was always at home at other people's. A little arithmetical calculation would have shown that he must have written his books in his sleep, but nobody had all the data. After some days Harold hunted him down. An eminent actor had returned from America and was reopening the lie market with Hamlet. Knowing of the friendship between the father and a tragedian, Harold purchased a stall. By good fortune it was behind his father's, but the overture had ceased before the lion came in. Harold had just time to greet him as the curtain went up. Then a religious silence settled on the house till the entrance of the Danish prince set it rocking for four minutes by the clock. During those minutes he made several efforts to say to his father what was raging in his soul, but the great man's nonchalant complacency and air of distinction awed him. The easy affability of the novelist's nod to the celebrities strewn about impressed him. Was it possible— this man whom he had so reverenced, to whom the world looked up, was a mere windbag. He began to hope again. The smoke clouds of a garret rolled off him like a nightmare at sundown. The audience ceased their applause at last, and the medieval Danish prince set off grimacing to the nineteenth century. The play proceeded. The fifth scene arrived. Alas, poor ghost, said the great tragedian. Pity me not, replied the ghost, but lend thy serious hearing to what I shall unfold. Speak, replied Hamlet, I am bound to hear. The art of the player, the intensity he put into the words, held the audience spellbound, but to herald every word struck home, bringing back the scene and the agony of the night of the fog. So thou art to revenge when thou shalt hear. The dread sonorous tone smote him like the sound of a trumpet. What? said Hamlet. Harold bent forward and hissed in his father's ear. I am thy father's ghost, Edward Halby. An electric shock seemed to traverse the novelist's body. His head fell back, his face pale as death. For hours that night his son talked with him, pacing the streets of the West End, both unconscious of the flight of time. 
Harold's demands for perfect justice were insistent. He conjured his father to throw away the worser part of his heart and to acknowledge his guilt to the world. His father argued, stormed, and jested, but never budged an inch. The novelist contended that his position was thoroughly justifiable, nay, one that redounded to his credit if the ledger were fairly balanced. He pointed out how the moral effect of these books, which were influencing thousands for good, could be dissipated if they were known to be the work of a drunken bohemian. The public abhorred the devil and all his works, and stupidly confused the work of art with the artist. He said he could easily have written the works himself if he had had time, and he had simply acted like the masters in all trades, subletting the work according to a contract that was perfectly free on the side of the employee. It was a gross breach of confidence and good faith on the part of the workman to reveal the secrets of the craft, even to his master's son. Edward Halby had always been dealt with generously and had all the inner satisfaction of successful authorship, quite as much as Sir Walter Scott. He simply published his books under the pseudonym of Harold Ross. That was all. What did it matter if, as the schoolboy said, Homer was not written by Homer but by another man of the same name? It was no concern of the world's. Besides, he was not the only person involved. Numerous critics and publishers and even friends would become public laughing-stocks if he made the indiscreet avowal his son desired. There was that friend and admirer, the French writer Ambertain, who in the Hoeve de Du Monde had shown the inevitableness of Harold Ross's writings in the light of his birthplace and his early upbringing, and had cited him as shining illustration of the theory of heredity and the application of science to literary criticism. What had the theory of heredity done to him that he should deal it such a blow? If he owed something to Edward Halby's reputation, he also owed something to his French friends. Who should decide which should suffer? Ethical questions were by no means the simple things his feather-headed and unworldly son imagined. They involved endless conundrums and people and causatry and never yet been reduced to principles. The son replied hotly that people with principles had never yet been reduced to causatry, but his cause was hopeless. He could not prevail upon his father to disavow even one book, and thus gradually break himself of his reputation. The dawn found the great man still set against sunset and eclipse. It was when the young man began to realize the impotency of his wishes, when he felt himself distracted at the burden of duty set upon his weak shoulders, and his reason slipping away down the precipice so suddenly opened at his feet that a gleam of hope burst upon his brain. It was the idea of vicarious reparation. To expose his father was beyond his strength. Could he not expiate the sin? Could he not rise in the scale of being and develop into a scapegoat? What if he took himself seriously? And if he bandished his mistrust and gave keener ear to the promptings of literary instinct? What if he made a reputation and paid it over to Edward Halby? His father was a moral bankrupt. Well, then, it behooved the son to discharge his hereditary liabilities in full. But Edward Halby was a dying man. The sunshine of fame was not for him. One thing alone remained. Edward Halby had a daughter. If he married her, any reputation he might make would be kept in the family. 
Edward Halby's blood ran in her veins, and the compensation would be as logical as the catastrophes of Greek tragedy. Harold Ross looked upon himself as a confirmed celibate, but fate had thrust a life task upon him, and he must not shuffle it off like a coward. Yes, he would marry Jenny Halby and take his wife's name. He made a last appeal to his father. Perhaps he might yet be saved from the cruel necessity of marrying a worn middle-aged woman whom he did not care two straws for. But this he said nothing to his father. He did not want his father to be swayed by pity for him, but purely by considerations of right and justice. The final scene took place at night upon a terrace overlooking the Thames. It reminded Harold of the battlements of Elsinore, his father told him to go to the devil. He went to his father's. He gave up his tainted allowance. His end was as tragic as Hamlet's. He married Jenny Halby. His reputation is yet to make. So ended the enthralling story, to which I alone had the key. It was rather amateurish in parts, I thought, and the title was rather forced, and, being a ghost story, it ought to have come out as a summer Christmas number but still I followed it with breathless interest. Whether anyone without my reasons could find it so exciting I could not tell. Of course, with this powerful clue I had easily discovered the real Edward Halby, whose name was Canning, and the real Jenny. The ghost gave up the flesh six months afterwards, and within a week of the funeral Elliot de Grey published a novel under the name of E. D. Canning. It was at once hailed as a work of immense power, and so I, alone in the world, knew that the world was mistaken, that Elliot de Cray, Sr., was a sham, and Elliot de Cray, Jr., the genius. His father had just that measure of talent which so often sires a genius. His father's reputation had always overshadowed the son. It helped, combined with his natural vacillation and diffidence, to keep him a flaneur but the sudden demands made upon him had drawn out the latent genius, and E. D. Canning promises to be one of the glories of contemporary literature. His identity will soon leak out, however, and he will become one of the stock instances of hereditary genius. I believe the strangely assorted couple, whose union was such a blow to the Bachelor's Club, lived happily ever afterwards, for the woman had a noble and cultured soul but quite by accident I discovered one day that she was only the cabman's stepdaughter. End of section 6